Um, <clears throat> if you would turn in your Bibles, we are in Psalm 26. Now, like first service, you guys were calm. I know that in your heart, some of you are like, yay, we made it out of First Samuel, but we didn't. We're in Psalm 26 because in 1 Samuel chapter 20, which I'll summarize this morning, we're going to get to see a psalm that David wrote about the time that is recorded as history in 1 Samuel chapter 20. All that to say, we're still in 1 Samuel, but I would like you to turn to Psalm chapter 26. Lily Ledbetter worked at Goodyear Tire in Alabama, and she worked on the line, and she worked there for two decades. As she was nearing retirement in 1998, she's anticipating all of the fun she's going to have, doing all the things she's always wanted to do, and not had time, but now she's going to. When she receives a letter that just shatters her, you see, re she received an anonymous note revealed that she had been paid significantly less than her male counterparts for the same work on the same factory line. She decided to take legal action against Goodyear, and she filed a lawsuit for wage discrimination, alleging that it was gender-based and that it caused her to earn less than her male counterparts. However, her case faced a really difficult battle, and that was the statute of limitations was 180 days after the first paycheck in which she believed there was discrimination, which is her first paycheck 20 years ago. The case made it all the way to the Supreme Court. It was about five years later. They finally handed down a decision, and it was a 5-4 decision, and they ruled against Lily. They ruled that she'd filed her claim too late. 20 years of wage discrimination comes down to one case where they say you filed too late. Kind of like, sorry about your luck. As Christians, we understand that the perfect justice will be handed down by the perfect judge and that we're probably going to have to wait for judgment day to finally experience perfect justice. We place our hope in God's ability to judge each of us perfectly. And we further place our hope in the promise that he's going to judge us based on Jesus' righteousness. But there's this in-between where we have to live, where judgment day is down here somewhere we don't know, and birth for each one of us. And in that time, there's this tension where you and I personally live through adversity and suffering and trial. And we see innocent people go through the same thing. And we have to figure out how to live as faithful Christians in the tension of that time between the perfect judge announcing his perfect justice and the time that we're born. 
And we have to live in such a way that it expresses our faithfulness in the one true, perfect judge. So when Christians face trials and adversity, last week we said David is facing this trial and this adversity and he's suffering unjustly at the hands of King Saul. And where did David turn? David turned to his faithful friend. Well, now as Christians who face trials and adversities, we have to turn to something more than a positive attitude. And we agree, Jesus said, and every New Testament author agreed, we're going to suffer. We'll be persecuted for our faith. We'll be disciplined by God because a father who loves his child will discipline them. We know that we're going to experience more than inconvenience. But we also know it's not our job to just sit there in the midst of the trial and clamp our eyes and squeeze our fists and grit our teeth. We believe that suffering produces character and character produces hope, but those are sort of ethereal. That's not really a next step. I can't pray and say, Georgetown Christian, go out there and suffer, and we'll see you next week when you got hope. There's got to be something that we do in the interim to express our trust in an almighty God who is also a perfect judge. So how then do we develop character in the midst of adversity, in the midst of trial, in the midst of suffering even unjust suffering. We endeavor together <clears throat> as a body of believers, as a people who assemble every week and are thereby known as the church, we strive to become more fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. So like David, we may turn to a faithful friend when we face adversity, but David turns to more than a friend. David also turns to God, which is why we're in Psalm 26. So before we go any further into Psalm 26, let's briefly review what we have written in 1 Samuel chapter 20. And if I just rewind a couple of chapters, remember David slain Goliath. Everybody liked that. Until... There was this song that became popular that went something like, Saul has slayed his, what, Georgetown? How many? Saul has slayed his thousands, and then, and then David has slain his tens of thousands. So it, it was a, maybe a fragile ego that was damaged somewhere in there after that defeat of Goliath where Saul began to, instead of fearing God he began to fear David or, or Israel's opinion of David. All we know is that the resulting events through chapter 17, 18, 19, we'll be in 20 in just a second, are Saul becoming increasingly angry with David to the point that he's throwing his spear at him. He's sending his guard to capture David in his house and kill him. 
David escapes because his wife insists that he has to leave right now. Some of you are thinking, I've heard that plan from my wife. You escape this house right now. You get out. But this actually saved his life. Then we, we observe that David and Jonathan have now, in chapter 20, they've developed this plan where maybe, maybe we'll find out that Saul is going to relent and he's just going to chill. And so the plan is for Jonathan to go to the feast, David's best friend, King Saul's son, to go to the feast of the new moon, to celebrate that with his, fathers, a two, his father, a two-day feast. Jonathan goes on the first day. King Saul doesn't think anything about it because maybe, maybe David was just ceremonially unclean. Maybe that's why he's not here. So I'm summarizing 1 Samuel chapter 20 right now. And then we're going to read what David wrote in Psalm 26 in a second. So keep this in mind. 1 Samuel chapter 20, the plan is hatched between David and Jonathan to find out is Saul still intent on murdering David. David goes to the feast the first day, no big deal. The second day, Saul starts spewing some accusatory remarks. I can't believe my son. You're, he calls him some names. It's really very colorful. Saul is very angry again. We hear at the beginning of the account that Saul's eating with his spear. I don't know if he's left-handed, but you can eat with your spear here too. And he's eating with his spear. And further down the account, we see that he makes an attempt on his own son's life. Really cuckoo. So he tries to murder Jonathan, which Jonathan takes as his hint that um, things are not going to go well for David. So the plan continues, and Jonathan goes out into a field where they've already decided to meet. David and Jonathan meet. Jonathan shoots the arrows. The boy fetches them. He takes the weapons back to town. And that was the sign. He shoots them beyond the rock. He tells the boy to go past the arrows, and David knows. That was the code. David knows now I really have to leave. Now I really have to permanently leave. I have to leave behind my wife. I have to leave behind my family. I have to leave behind my friends. I have to leave behind a career that I've become so good at that there's a song about me. I have to leave it all behind. And David and Jonathan reaffirm their, their love for one another, their covenant together. And then David leaves. So imagine that day when Jonathan comes out to tell David. And then imagine the days of the new moon feast when Jonathan is eating with Saul and David is thinking right now, my best friend is eating the feast I'm supposed to be at with my boss, his dad, and my fate lies in the balance. So what is it that we see David do as he's made? We don't know exactly when Psalm 26 is written, but what does David do? Uh, last Sunday, David turned to his faithful friend, Jonathan. What does David do now? Jonathan's at dinner or the feast. David presumably writes Psalm 26. So I want you to listen to just the first verse of this psalm, we won't get all the way through it because I think there's more than enough. In two points, there's more than enough for me and for you 
to put into practice. Because if our goal is to become a fully devoted follower of Jesus, and I gave you 18 things to do today, and you did zero, you're not a fully devoted follower. In fact, you haven't even grown in his image or likeness. So we'll just take two. But I want you to listen to Psalm 26, verse 1, and imagine David writing this, praying this, singing this. We don't know how. Imagine that situation that David's in when he realizes permanently he has to leave. He writes, Vindicate me, Lord, for I have led a blameless life. I have trusted in the Lord, and I have not faltered. David turned to the Lord when he's in the midst of an unjust pursuit by the king of Israel. He's got all the power he needs to find him, presumably. At least if you're David, you think so. He turns to God and he cried out to the Lord for vindication. What is vindication? What, what is vindication? When you're accused of something and you're not guilty of it, vindication is when you're shown that you're innocent. Vindication, when you're not guilty, is the execution of justice. You're shown to be innocent, if you were innocent. I was coming up the cut on Interstate 64 from New Albany area up towards Georgetown. Uh, I'd made it around the loop and I was driving up I-64. Uh, yeah, I-64. And uh, I'm driving my little toaster, the little Scion XB 2006, 2.4 liters of roaring power. Thank you, Toyota. It's a, quite a monster. If anybody wants to race me, I will lose, uh, even if you're walking. My car will get up to the speed limit, even if it takes an hour. But it is not a zippy car. Uh, although I, I can imagine you probably thinking it looks very amazing. I'm coming up the interstate. It's a hill. I'm thinking there's no way I could be speeding because in my rear view mirror, I see a police car. And so Noah's in the back seat. And I think at the time he's probably like 13-ish, 12-ish, about to be a driver. And I'm thinking this is a great example because I'm going to teach Noah, you pull over and let him by. And I pull over and he won't go by. And just a little bit more and oh, nope, he's pulling over too. And I'm thinking this policeman is clearly out of his mind. I must be vindicated. Because as he pulls over, and it's raining, and I'm thinking there's no reason for me to be pulled over because it's not possible that I could speed, right? I'm in the super turbo, not so fast car, and he comes out to my window, and I'm just thinking, I will be vindicated. I will text Officer Carpenter, we'll find out what this man's boss's name is, and I will go full Karen. I will have justice. <laughs> And he's, uh, it, it turns out he asked me if I knew where the turn signal was. I had <laughs> failed the signal like seven times in two miles, which was evidently like a Floyd County record. So I was not vindicated because I was guilty, but pretend for a second that I wasn't guilty. I would want to be vindicated. David wants to be vindicated of Saul's unjust pursuit of his life. And where does he turn? Well, he turns to the Lord. And he says, Lord, vindicate 
me. So I wonder if you're more, maybe you're more like me, and as that policeman is coming up to your window, you're thinking, I'm going to get his badge number, and I'm going to find out his boss's name, and he's going to pay. That judge will see the truth. Or if you're more like David, who I think may be more like Jesus. Because when it comes to the handling of justice, imagine, if you will, the scales of justice. That image for law, if you ever see it iconified, it's a scale and you try to balance it. But as humans, we're not so great at that. Because if you're like me, whenever you're having court in your heart, it goes something like, uh, Judge Tanner, yes, Councilman Tanner, uh, here is all of the evidence that would prove that all of these people are very wrong and I am right. And then it's crazy, but in my heart, I win every time. How crazy is it? Do you guys win every time? When you're the judge in your own heart and you present the evidence to yourself, the judge, do you win all the time? Yeah, I mean, until the policeman tells you that you weren't signaling. Yeah, I bet you win like I do all the time in our own hearts because we cannot be a perfectly just judge to, to balance justice perfectly. We're not capable. But we have a perfect judge who is capable. And who does David turn to for vindication when he knows that he cannot carry out justice perfectly. A, a big city lawyer was representing a, an old rancher <clears throat> in a case where the old rancher's prized bull went missing, and it went missing in the segment of his ranch where the train passes through. So there's a lawsuit. Of course, the bull is missing. It was in the... <clears throat> it was in the area of the pasture where the train goes through. So big city lawyer for the train company comes to little podunk town where the rancher lives, the old rancher and the big city lawyer, they're meeting in the back of the general store for pre-trial conference. Is this case going to make it? Is it even going to court? And big city lawyer's thinking, I'm going to settle, and I'm going to squeeze this guy, and I'm going to get him. And so big city lawyer turns on all of his best salesmanship, and he gets old rancher to settle for half the, the worth of his prized bull. Big city lawyer, of course, has the check with him. He hands it to the old rancher, and as he hands it to him, he can't help himself. He has to gloat. And so big city lawyer says, man, I'm sure glad I got you for that. Because the truth is, the engineer was asleep and the fireman was back in the caboose. And we had no witnesses. I had no idea how I was going to win today. And the old rancher says, well, I'll tell you what, young feller. I didn't know how I was going to win either because the bull came home this morning. <laughs> we think that we can carry out justice perfectly. But the truth is, sometimes we're like big city lawyer, and sometimes we're like old rancher. And the truth of the matter is, we're not so hot at executing justice. And we're in no comparison to a perfect judge who can truly vindicate us when we are innocent. 
when we're innocent. That assumes that we're innocent. So where does David turn next? We'll go to Psalm 26, verse 2 in just one moment. I think sometimes when we're stuck in find my own justice mode, we will seek revenge, which is if you're just wanting vindication to be declared innocent here, sometimes we'll even go into revenge, which the Lord says is his in Romans. Paul writes that vengeance is mine, says the Lord, and, and it's his because if you're anything like me, when that, when that policeman's walking up on the side of your car, or, or if you're anything like uh, an old-timer who's eating at a truck stop when these three bikers pull in, he's just sitting there minding his own business, eating his breakfast, and the first biker comes in and he puts his cigarette out in his pancakes. And the next biker comes in and he spits a wad of chew in his coffee. And the third biker tosses his plate on the floor. Well, the old man just gets up, goes to the cash register, pays his bill, and leaves. And the biker, one of the bikers, sort of in the direction of the waitress, says, what kind of man is that? And the waitress says, if you're talking about the guy driving the truck, I don't know, but he just backed over three motorcycles before he left. We cannot carry out perfect justice if it's up to us. If it's up to us being the judge of our own situation in our own heart, which is why David turns to God and says, vindicate me. Then David goes on to say, because even though we're not great judges, there are times when you really are innocent. There are times when you could go to work and you could hear the rumors starting that some money's missing. And you know, beyond the shadow of a doubt, you didn't steal the money. But how do you prove a negative? You know that you're innocent. David knows that he's innocent. But look at what David says in verse 2. Because we're not all as innocent as we like to think we are. David writes, test me, Lord, and try me. I want you to read the second part with me, Georgetown. Test me, Lord, and try me. Examine my heart and my mind. David asks God, in the midst of an unjust pursuit by an all-powerful king who is his best friend's dad and his wife's father, maybe, maybe there's something wrong in my heart. Do we ever stop to say, maybe there's something wrong in my heart? David does. David says, test me, try me, examine me, try my heart and see if I'm as innocent as I think I am. David doesn't just assume he's right. But is this, is this David's normal practice, or is David just writing this psalm to look really goody-goody? We can look at a couple of examples and see how David typically responds. You'll remember that David cheated, and he, he stole another man's wife, Bathsheba, and he committed adultery. And furthermore, he had his adulterous girlfriend's husband, murdered. And so then we have him writing after the fact, after the prophet Nathan has confronted him 
<clears throat> told him a story about a rich man and a poor man and a lamb. And David writes this psalm. Listen to these words as you think about David who says, examine my heart. Well, is he always willing? What about when he's wrong? He says in Psalm 51, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you're right in your verdict and justified when you judge. David's willing to trust God even when he's not going to be vindicated. David's willing to trust God even when he's convicted, even when he's guilty. Are we willing, when we feel like we're being persecuted or unjustly pursued or somehow accused wrongly, are we willing to stop and risk the possibility? I'm pretty sure I just saw a wife elbow her husband. Are we willing to risk the possibility that we are wrong? This isn't necessarily about husbands and wives, although it could apply there. Are we willing to go before God and to say, test me? I may have sin in my heart. David is. He's open to God's rebuke. He's willing to let the Lord test his heart amidst unjust trial and persecution. David knows that the Lord is the one who searches hearts. Consider whenever he's installing King Solomon over the kingdom of Israel. Consider what he says to his son, King Solomon. He says, and you, my son Solomon, acknowledge the God of your father. Now listen to how he talks about, in front of all of Israel and his son, how he talks about God. And serve him with your wholehearted devotion and with a willing mind, for the Lord searches every heart and understands every desire and every thought. See, David knows that the Lord searches the heart, whether we open the heart to the Lord or not. The question is, are we, are we willing to say, Lord, test me, examine me, try me, and if I'm guiltless, vindicate me, but if I'm not, convict me. I wonder... How often you and I rush to proclaim our innocence for the world to hear before we stop to say, God, am I innocent? Examine me. Try me. Test me. And how much more so when we're unjustly accused when the lights come on in the rearview mirror and you haven't been speeding, how much more so is it difficult to stop and say, okay, Lord, examine my heart. Show me any error of my way. David writes in another psalm, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. How quickly do we assume we're innocent? Imagine a family 
of faith like Georgetown Christian, gathered believers, the body, the church. Imagine a, a group of us living lives amongst our neighbors and with, in our homes with our families, our children, our spouses, our grandparents. Imagine working with co-workers and, and going to school with classmates and, and those people who all know us very well. Imagine living a life that first says, amidst trial and adversity, God examine my heart. God vindicate me. Imagine when our community notices that we're not immediately defending our position and proclaiming our righteousness based on our own works or deeds or our character, which by now at work should stand for something. 20 years, you would think I'd be believed. But imagine allowing God to vindicate us. And imagine the perception of Jesus as the true judge when we say we're trusting God to vindicate us. Or when we say, I'm going to examine, we don't mean to tell them, but say to ourselves, I'm going to examine my own heart before I proclaim my innocence in this situation. Imagine the way that changes your own family, let alone our community. If you would bow your heads, I want to wrap up. I want to ask the question, are we willing to trust God for our vindication? Are we willing to state our innocence before God, but also to ask him to test, to try, to examine our hearts. Are we ready to repent if we're not vindicated, but we're convicted? I wonder if like Saul, we'll be more afraid of what the community might think or the family or the co-workers or the friends I wonder if we're more concerned about what they think and we get so afraid of opinion that we can no longer fear the truly perfect judge. Will we try to hide? Or will we trust the Lord with our heart? God used the unjust to justify each of us. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. He took him, Jesus, who knew no sin, and he made him sin. He was, in that sense, not fair. That we might receive life, that we might be seen as righteous. God took something unjust and brought about justice and hope. And if we're willing to trust him with our lives, he can bring about glory for himself and justice for us in a way that we could never do if we're the judge. Only the Lord could bring life from an instrument made for death. By the crucifixion of his son, he's offered us life. 
Today, if you think that God has laid something on your heart, I'm going to give you a moment to reflect and to answer him. The two questions, Lord, am I willing to let you vindicate me? And number two, Lord, examine my heart. If you have never allowed the Lord to examine your heart and you are outside of Christ, you, in other words, have not placed your complete hope and trust exclusively in Jesus as your Savior, then this morning when you pray, you will hear the Holy Spirit convicting you saying, you must trust me. You must place your faith entirely in me. Jesus says he's the way and the truth and the life. And I know that some this morning are looking for any way. And in a month that is just wrought with utter lies, celebrating lies, you're looking for truth. And you know that the life you've created is no life at all because it ends meaninglessly. Today, accept his invitation to become a member of his body and to become a follower, to be empowered by his Holy Spirit, to be an ambassador of hope, to live a life that's transformed, to look like the life of Jesus. Father, we pray that you would help us as we wish to let you vindicate us and as we seek to trust you to examine our hearts and if you find sin to repent, to turn away and to turn towards you in faith. Father, we pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. All God's people said.